But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of, the, of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, once again in your word, we are beholding wondrous things. Lord, for there's arguably nothing more wondrous than the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, once again, I am aware of my complete and utter inability to communicate these things in any way that would be effectual in the lives of people, even in my own life. But Lord, I'm confident in the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish that for which you send your word. Work in our hearts, I pray, that we would all behold the risen Christ and that we would all respond to him with faith and worship. We ask this all in his matchless name. Amen. Well, on this Resurrection Sunday, in God's providence, we are looking at Luke 24, 1-12. to And, and if you are here as a visitor this morning, that this, this might seem, well, of course, this is not a surprise. This is what churches do. They, they talk about the passages that deal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Resurrection Sunday. But in, again, in God's providence, we talked about this on Friday, that, that I'm speaking about these things in the course of our studies of the gospel according to Luke. We've been in Luke for, for over two years almost two and a half years, and, and we're, we're here, finally here, almost at the end of Luke, and specifically speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on this Resurrection Sunday, with Luke's description of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the climax of Luke's gospel account. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the, the climax of all of the gospel accounts. It's the climax of the Bible. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the climax of of all history and will be until his return. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an essential component of our faith. It's foundational. Theologian James Foote says that it is one of the great hinges on which the whole plan of salvation turns. Now that's not saying that the resurrection is the basis of our Christian faith. It is the risen Christ himself who is the basis of our faith. It is the risen Christ himself who made possible the way of salvation. You see, if, if Jesus Christ has not been resurrected, then Christianity is just another man-made religion. Not only would its head be dead like the leader of every other religion, but Jesus Christ, if he is not raised from the dead, then Jesus Christ would be either a liar or a lunatic. He could certainly not be the Lord. All of his promises of the resurrection, in fact, all of his promises would have either been lies or delusions. But Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the risen Lord. Everything Jesus Christ said came to pass because everything Jesus Christ says must come to pass. 
It is only through the risen Christ, the exalted Son of God in human flesh, that we can be saved from our sin and saved to a relationship with God. Christ's resurrection is also a guarantee of our resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. So Luke 24, 1-12 is all about the resurrection of Jesus, but Luke 24, 1-12 doesn't describe the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, none of the Gospels do. Unlike the death of Jesus, where there are, were many eyewitnesses, here at the resurrection, there were no eyewitnesses. No human being actually saw it happen. And in fact, in this passage, we don't even see the risen Christ. Jesus is not present physically in this passage. Now Luke is going to describe an appearance of the risen Christ a couple of verses later in verse 15. But once again, Luke describes these events primarily through the eyes of witnesses. First, the women, the same ones who had been present at his death, and then two angels, and then the apostle Peter. But the human beings, even though they do not see the risen Christ in this passage, they are eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. But the two angels that we see in this passage are actual eyewitnesses. And so the disciples are going to have to take the fact of the resurrection on faith. So three main points in this passage. Verses 1 to 3, we see the women at the tomb. In verses 4 to 8, we see the testimony of the angels at the tomb. And then in verses 9 to 12, we see the testimony of the, of the women. So in reality, again, that the resurrection is testified to in, in all four gospel accounts. Now there's differences in the details that are presented, but these details are, are complementary, not contradictory. But the resurrection is not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians and Philemon and 1 Thessalonians and Hebrews and 1 Peter and Revelation all testify to the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you need to understand that the Bible is not just one book. The Bible is actually 66 books written by at least 40 authors over thousands of years. And there are no contradictions. That every one of these authors, I mean, you put, put three people in a room together today and they're not going to agree about very much, but these are 40 authors, 40 authors over thousands of years who agree perfectly with one another about these events and about everything that they're right in Holy Scripture. So let's turn then to Luke 24, 1-12 to and see how Luke testifies of the events of the resurrection. First of all, in verses 1-3, to the women at the tomb. Luke picks up the narrative very early on the first day of the week, Sunday morning. It's now the third day after Jesus Christ had given up his life on the cross. Luke ended chapter 23 after the death of Christ with the women who had followed him throughout his ministry, all the way back from his time in Galilee. And now they followed his earthly remains to the tomb. They saw the tomb and they saw how his body had been laid inside. And then they went away to prepare spices and ointments for his body. And then they rested, according to the commandment, on the seventh day. The Sabbath ended at sunset. 
on Saturday, but they would not have been able to do anything in the dark, so they waited until early on Sunday morning. And so now they went back to the tomb with the spices that they had prepared. Again, just put your, just, just, just try to think about, about how these women would have been feeling. They had followed Jesus closely for three years. And now he was dead. The one in whom they had laid their hope, their, their hopes of the kingdom had been dashed. Everything looked grim and hopeless. But even in their despair, they're doing this. They're, they're going to anoint the body of Jesus out of devotion to Jesus. But things are about to appear a whole lot worse. When they arrived at the tomb, they found that the large stone had been rolled away. See, in the ancient Near East, the entrance of a tomb was sealed with, with a, a large round stone that was placed in a channel cut into the rock. And it was sealed there so that, uh, that, that robbers and others could not go in and, and, and steal from the body. And also because the, the, the body would have been was considered unclean. But when they arrive at the tomb, they find that the tomb was open. They had expected to find the lifeless body of Jesus inside, but they didn't find him. Now, by referring to him here as the Lord Jesus, Luke is revealing that death did nothing to diminish Christ's authority. He is still the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is going to be a common title referring to Jesus as we'll, as we'll see in the book of Acts. But of course, the women knew nothing of this yet. Now you can imagine their horror. You can imagine some of the thoughts that might have been going through their minds. Where is he? Did, did someone steal his body? Who would have done such a thing? Did the, did the Sanhedrin or, or, or the Romans after killing him take, take his body for some wicked purposes? These women are the first human eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. And you feel for them, don't you? You feel for them because, because you know the rest of the story. But before it gets better for them, it's going to get even more difficult. Verses 4 to 8. The testimony of the angels at the tomb. The woman's bewilderment turns to fear suddenly as two men appeared in front of them in dazzling clothes. John tells us that there were angels. The appearance of angels here after the death of Jesus draws a link with the angels that were there at the birth of Jesus. Now we picture angels as, as having wings, but in the Bible, few angels are actually described as, as having wings, only the, the cherubim and the seraphim. Most angels are described in the scriptures as having the appearance of men. And you'd be fearful if you saw these angels as well. Matthew describes only one of the angels, but he says that their appearance was like lightning and their clothing white as snow. And Matthew also adds that it was the angel who had rolled back the tomb, or the stone from the tomb. And so the women are terrified. And they bow with their faces to the earth out of deference to the, in the presence of these heavenly messengers. And the word angel, it actually means messenger. These were indeed messengers sent from God. And these angels had a very important message. They said, why do you seek the living from among the dead? It's actually an admonition, a gentle admonition, but, 
But here the women are at the tomb and the angels are saying, you're in the wrong place. You don't need to be here because he's not here. And so the angels continue with, with one of the most beautiful statements that has ever been made. He is not here, but has risen. He is not here, but has risen. And so the angels are here as, as two witnesses to attest to the reality of the resurrection that God has indeed raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, the, the verb that, that's translated risen here is, is actually in the, it's a little bit technical. It's in the passive voice. This passive voice in, in Greek is here is sometimes re referred to as the divine passive. So in other words, Jesus Christ is not here, for God has raised him from the dead. Similarly, in, in Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. So then who resurrected Jesus? God resurrected Jesus. In Galatians 1.1, we read that God the Father raised him from the dead. But in John 2.19, Jesus says, speaking of the temple of his body, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus resurrected himself. John directly links this with the resurrection. And in Romans 8.11, we see that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together raised Jesus from the dead. The triune God raised Jesus from the dead. Like so much of what we find in Scripture, the, the whole Trinity is at work. Though he was sinless, Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sin bearer, bearing the guilt for his people's sins. God the Father has poured out his wrath on his Son in our place. He did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, Romans 8.32. But with the resurrection, the Father is vindicating the Son, demonstrating that he was in fact innocent, just like Pontius Pilate said four times. Just like Herod said, just like the penitent thief said, just like the Roman centurion said, Jesus is innocent. The resurrection is God's testimony that Jesus Christ is in fact his righteous son. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's testimony of the vindication for all who are in Christ. Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Romans 4.25 The resurrection is God's testimony that the death of Jesus Christ has accomplished what God intended, that by his death, Christ has defeated death for his people. That by his death, he defeated sin for his people. The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, causing us to be born again, granting us faith, granting us repentance, and applying the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf for our salvation. The angels continue now with a, a second gentle admonition. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They didn't remember what Jesus said about his crucifixion and they didn't remember what Jesus had said about his resurrection. Their, their, their failure their failure to understand the empty tomb comes from a failure to remember Jesus' teaching. 
his specific teaching about his death and about his resurrection. Jesus had been telling them ever since they were in Galilee that this was going to happen. In Luke 9, 22, just before he set his face towards Jerusalem, he told them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and be killed and on the third day be raised. He said it again in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus kept on saying this for the rest of his time with them, and they should have remembered. Now the angels referred to Jesus as the Son of Man, just as Jesus did himself in Luke 9, 22 and 44. It's a title that, that Jesus often uses it of himself. He'd called himself the Son of Man just recently when on trial with the Sanhedrin. When he said, for now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So being the Son of Man shows Jesus' authority. It shows his dominion. And this is fulfilled in Revelation 14, 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is the glorified Jesus Christ. Jesus had said, and the angels repeated, that the Son of Man must be delivered. These events were necessary. What has happened ought not to have been a surprise. God must fulfill the plan of redemption he has devised before the foundation of the world. The angels outlined the three main steps in the plan. The Son of Man must be delivered and crucified and raised. Delivered, crucified, and raised. Jesus Christ delivered by sinful Judas into the hands of sinful Jews and then to the sinful Romans, nailed to the cross to pay for the guilt of sinful people like you and me, but raised from the dead on the third day for his vindication and for ours. And the, ad, the angel's admonition is, is one not just for these women, but the angel's admonition is one that all of us should remember. It's an admonition we should all take to heart. Remember what Jesus told you. Remember everything that Jesus told you. Remember what Jesus has told you in his word. To fail to remember is a failure to understand the meaning and or the importance of what you're being told. To fail to remember can also come from an unbelieving heart. But now the women did believe. Now the women did remember. The angels, at the angel's admonition, it all came flooding back. Now they remembered Christ's words. Friends, the key to faith is the word of God. And to remember is, is not just, just like writing an answer on a final exam. It means to understand. It means to respond accordingly. It means to respond with faith. So these women had heard these words before but did not understand their meaning or their importance. But now they understood. Now they understood this has to be one of the most glorious aha moments that has ever taken place. And many in this room have experienced that aha moment. And the recognition of the truths of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. It's a, with the, the acceptance, the belief in the gospel that Jesus Christ is truly who he said he is. That he really died for the sins of his people and that he really would be raised on the third day from the grave. Have you experienced that aha moment? Now we crave new information. 
But why do we just remember what we already know? Hebrews 2.1 warns us, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Cultivate love for God and His Word through God and His Word. So the women forgot, but when it mattered most, they remembered. They remembered. This should be an encouragement to us. Remember Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. That this is your only hope for your resurrection. This is your only hope for your departed loved ones who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We share God's word with others, and, and so often it seems to go in one ear and out the other. We share the gospel with our kids, with our extended family, with our friends and neighbors and co-workers, with anyone who will listen, and, and even at times those who will not. And so often they don't seem to be impacted at all. They, they, they seem to forget immediately what you said. But maybe the Lord will bring it to their mind at some point in the future. Keep praying that, that God will bring the gospel truth that you share into the minds and the hearts of others. I remember in a sermon hearing about a man from England in the 19th century. He had heard the gospel during a sermon when he was a teenager. And then he completely walked away from everything, walked away from church and, and had nothing to do with it. And, and during this period, he had, he had also uh, emigrated to the United States and fully 60 years went by. He was almost 80 years old and he was, was sitting under a tree having his lunch. And he remembered that sermon that he'd heard as a teenager. And he immediately repented of his sin and put his faith in Jesus Christ. Take hope. Take, you, you, th those seeds, those gospel seeds, might be in the earth for a very long time before the Holy Spirit brings fruit from them. Don't give up. Keep praying for those you've shared the gospel with. Finally, or next we see in, in verses 9 to 12, the testimony of the women. The women did, didn't just remember. They responded with faith and obedience. Matthew includes a, a direct command from the angels to go quickly and to tell the disciples. John tells us that they ran. You can imagine they would be running. Luke 24, 9. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Obviously, they didn't just tell the disciples about the angels, but, but especially, far more importantly, they, they, they told the disciples about Jesus' teaching that his, the, the resurrection fulfilled what Jesus had said he was going to do. And Luke now interjects and gives us the names of these women. If you harmonize the Gospels, you can see that there were at least five women who had gone to the tomb and were now back before the disciples. Mary Magdalene is named first. John records that, that she was, in fact, the first to see the risen Christ. And so these women are now before the disciples. Augustine points out that they had the unparalleled privilege of being the first creatures of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they told the apostles. Now Judas was gone, so there was only 11 left. But the response is dreadful. Verse 11, these words seem to them an idle tale. Now the word translated idle tale is only used here in the New Testament. It can also refer to talking nonsense. But the women were just confirming what Jesus had told them again and again and relaying what the angelic messengers had reiterated. 
The apostles did not believe. Now the verb here is actually in the active voice. They refused to believe. Now, now certainly that their hearts and their hopes for the kingdom had been shattered. But it's not a good look for the apostles. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. That phrase, but Peter, is seen repeatedly in the Gospels. We'll see it a lot more in the book of Acts. See, Peter is impulsive. But in Acts, we're going to see that impulsiveness sanctified as as holy boldness. Peter charges ahead. John tells us that he went with him. But Luke's focus here is on Peter. Peter's denied Jesus three times, but he's already begun to repent. He wants to see for himself. And so stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Peter is another witness of the empty tomb. But what's Peter's response? Peter's response here is ambiguous. He went home marveling at what had happened. He didn't yet believe in the resurrection, but he went home marveling. Like the crowds at the crucifixion, he went home. Now Peter's response here does not necessarily mean that he believe, that he is going to believe that Jesus Christ has been resurrected, but it seems to, to admit the, the possibility of belief. We're going to see what happens with Peter later on in Luke 24. But the question that, that you need to be asking yourself is what is your response going to be? You've heard the testimony of the empty tomb. You, you've heard the testimony from the women and from the angels and from Peter. Are you going to go home marveling at what had happened? Are you like the women looking for the living among the dead? Or are you going to remember that what Jesus said must happen, that this must happen, that he must be delivered up until death, crucified, and raised? Are you going to put your life and your faith in a crucified but living Savior? I wouldn't do it for a dead one. A dead Savior is no Savior at all. But Jesus Christ is a living Savior. Jesus is alive, and He is now offering you new life in Him. Do you believe? Do you believe? Is your faith in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior? And does your life reflect that? Romans 6.4, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in your heart empowering you to walk in obedience, to grow in obedience to Jesus Christ. But do you believe that Jesus lives? by God's grace and for His glory, live like it. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, and your only hope is to place your hope in the risen Savior. Let's turn to Him now in prayer.
Heavenly Father, as we commit these words into the lives of the people gathered here this morning, we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make them alive, that, that you would cause these gospel seeds to spring forth and to bear much fruit for your glory. We pray that you would grant faith and repentance, and where you've already granted it, may you continue to grant it. May you cause us to grow in our faith, to grow in a life that honors you for your glory. And may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.